0: Today, I want to share with you a class that I would call Know Your Worth, Know Your Context. As women, both in the church and in society, very often our place has been questioned and our role has been confined to certain spaces with restrictions on women's ability to lead, teach, preach and engage in other forms of ministry. Today, we're going to look at about five passages that have been primarily proof texted, used to assign women a subordinate place within the church and within ministry. And we're also going to look at the larger context of what scripture has to say about this topic. Now, As always, I would highly encourage you not to trust my word, but to take the word of God and to divide it rightly according to your own discernment, according to what the Holy Spirit would reveal to you, and always test the teaching. Always test the spirit in which things are taught and double check everything according to the word of truth. Today, I share with you from my own personal context. As I said, this class would be called Know Your Worth, but Know Your Context. And context really matters. So, my context is that I have been a pastor for almost 20 years. I have my MDiv from North Park Theological Seminary, uh, as well as a, a doctorate from that same institution. I currently work as an adjunct professor at Wheaton College, and I also work for Northern Baptist Theological Seminary. All of these things I have done through the solid encouragement of my husband. He is the one who, in, uh, advocated for me to go to seminary. He's the one who pushed me to become a pastor and he is the one who supported and encouraged me to go on and get my doctorate. He is my partner in ministry and I am so thankful for him. I know that I am blessed with him in a way that many women do not have that in their life. And I hope that today would be an encouragement to you to persevere and to do what God has called you to do for the full inclusion of women in ministry. So as we get into this text today, we're going to start off with Ephesians 5.22. And I apologize in advance, I use my actual Bible, so there may be times when you hear the turning of pages. Uh, I hope it doesn't compromise the sound quality too much, but if it does, just please bear with me. So we're going to start off with Ephesians 5.22, which is one of the first texts that we look at that create some troubling uh, identity for women. Ephesians 5.22 says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So this is actually 522 through 24. But if you look back, there's a separation here in many of our Bibles. uh, And if you look to verse 21, which comes immediately before this text, again, looking at context, Uh, the verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what Paul is actually talking about here is the fact that there needs to be order in our homes, order in society and order in the house of God. The same way that we don't want to have chaos in society, but there are structured leadership positions, there are structured in the household, there is meant to be a designed order where husbands, as those who would, be willing to lay down their life for their wife in the same way that Christ laid down his life for the church. Women should therefore, out of respect for their husbands, uh, be willing to submit to that authority, uh, knowing full well that as a godly man, he would have their best interests at heart. And as I shared in my household, my husband is the one who has encouraged me to fully embrace my calling. So as you go on with this text, Going to where it talks about husbands, it says, Husband, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, which is what I mentioned that a husband, being a godly man, would be willing to give up his life for his wife. But it also says, Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish. And what he's talking about here is not the physical wife, but the spiritual uh, identity of the church. But what this implies for husbands is not only that they should be willing to lay down their life for their wife, but in addition, that they would strive for her to become holy. In other words, for her to fulfill God's will for her life. So whatever God has purposed and created her to be fearfully and wonderfully made, whatever it is that God has called her to do, he would help her to discern that will and encourage her to fully walk in that calling so that she may be holy as God is holy not to put her in a subordinate position where she is there to serve him. So the next text that we're going to look at is 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 says, in starting in verse 1, it says, "...wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives." And we're not going to read all of this text. It goes quite on. It talks about how your beauty should not come from jewelry or extravagant things, but it should come from your inner self. A couple of things about this passage. He is talking in this verse about the fact that women may have had unbelieving husbands and by submitting their husbands would see their example of the fact that they had been transformed, that they had been changed and through their behavior might come to know Christ. For those who are in Christ, we look at verse 7, where it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Unpacking this verse... Husbands are meant to be considerate as they live with their wives. And it says to treat them with respect. So, in the same way that wives are meant to treat their husbands with respect, husbands are also to treat their wives with respect. And why? Not because they're the weaker partner, but the word here actually means vessel. And it means a delicate vessel. So, women, being the way that they're designed, uh, are physically, this is specifically meant to talk about the physical design of women, that God has designed us to be a more delicate vessel. And men, as we know very often in culture, have the, the primary perpetrators of domestic violence and abuse is most often men against women. Men are physically stronger for the most part than women are. And this is talking about men respecting women and not forcing themselves on them, not dominating over them in a way that they use their power and that they use their strength to make them subordinate. The very thing that we're discussing uh, about women's worth and women's value in society and in the church. So as we look at this, the next text that we want to look at is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse three. It says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, I mean his head covered, dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. What we see here Again, we're not going to change the text. The text says what it says, but this text is in a cultural context, and we're going to see in a moment that Paul is not talking from a place of a commandment. He's talking, not talking about a place uh, where it is specifically a command directly from God. He's talking about knowing your context, and in this context of the ancient Near East, Women who did not wear a head covering were considered promiscuous. They were considered immoral. And so if it was a shame for women to walk around with their head uncovered, then it is though their head was shaved. In other words, as a woman who was disgraced uh, through through rape or through grief, um, women shaving their head was a sign that they had been dishonored. And so as long as it was a disgrace for women to not have a head covering, women should then pray or prophesy with their heads covered. But what we see here, it says that a woman can pray and prophesy. So this is actually one of the first things that was scandalous in that culture, where Paul is actually saying that it is acceptable for a woman to pray and prophesy publicly as long as she wore some sign of the fact that she was not a sexually immoral woman. But the more important part about this is that in verse 11, it says this is the part that comes directly from the Lord rather than a cultural context. In verse 11, it says, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So this is the part that we see is designed for the context of the church. Woman is not independent of man. Man is not independent of woman. We are all equally made in the image of God we are all the same before the Lord because as woman came from man man also comes from woman so in the eyes of God we are equals although we are different the the what we're seeing here in these texts is that God has designed for men and women to be different not in the sense that their roles are meant to be subordinate or more with more authority but in the sense that we should not become androgynous that there should be a difference between the way that men reflect the image of God and the way that women reflect the image of God with that we turn to first Corinthians chapter 14 first Corinthians chapter 14 is one of the primary verses that is used to show that women should not be fully included in the church so verse 34 it says women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak but must remain in submission and As the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Understanding the context here is also important. In the time of the early church, the average woman's lifespan was about 30 years old. For men, they usually live to about 50. By and large, the implications of that in society was that men usually married much, much younger women. So in the context of the church, you already have the scandal. People were accusing the church of having orgies and being sexually immoral because they had joint assemblies. The men and women were together, which was unheard of in that culture, And you have a dynamic here where men who were in their 30s were marrying women who were just teenagers. They were just kids. And moreover, women were, by and large, not literate. They were not trained in school. And they definitely had not participated in services such as what the church was doing. So they did not understand how to behave, what was happening And we see that this is actually in the context, what Paul is talking about here is orderly worship. He talks about how everyone has a word or hymn or instruction. And he says everyone, which is men and women. So women were allowed to participate in the service. But what he's talking about is that when the word was brought forward, the same way that the prophets should submit to one another, that if one is talking and another one gets a word, the first one should sit down. He's saying that in the congregation, women should remain silent when the word is coming forth because they were inquiring. It says they should inquire at home. So they were asking questions. They were being disruptive to the service because they did not understand. They had not been educated. They had not participated in religious gatherings previously. And so they did not know how to how to the decorum of how they should interact and how they should behave in service so when they had questions they were meant to ask those questions at home and not to disrupt the service and it says for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church being disgraceful because they're disrespecting and it creates chaos and disorder in the church so when we look at first timothy chapter three and I know right now it may seem like I'm proof texting, but we're going to look at these troublesome verses. And then we're going to look at the larger context of what scripture has to say about women throughout the Bible, that even in a patriarchal culture, what was happening was scandalous. And what was happening in the early church and throughout scripture gave women a place that was completely counter from the rest of society and actually elevated the position of women. So in First Timothy chapter 3, we see that it talks about the requirements for overseers and deacons. And the predominant word that is used here is the masculine form. And it talks about all of the requirements that the overseer or deacon should be the husband of but one wife. That right there is a flag for us because men often had multiple wives and out of respect for women, they were required, according to the church, to only have one wife and to not engage in polygamy. The women, by and large, would only have had one husband. So this would not have been an issue for women who would only have had one husband to begin with. And it goes on to talk about how they should have order in their home, how they should not indulge in wine, how they should not be dishonest. And it goes on and on about these moral implications of what an overseer and a deacon, how they should behave. But let's look at Romans chapter 16. In Romans chapter 16, verse one, it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. And in the English translation, it says a servant of the church. And the word servant there is diaconos, which means deacon. It is the same word that is used in first Timothy chapter three. So we can specifically see that in English, because it was, did not fit what we would perceive to be a traditional translation of scripture, it was translated here as servant, where in First Timothy it was translated as deacon. But the word is identical, diaconos, which means a deacon in English, uh, or in First Timothy it should be translated as servant. But Phoebe was clearly in this role and in this position. So we see that in First Timothy, what's happening here is that the predominant word, the cultural norms, which was true in English for many, many years until recently, that the word he was seen as gender neutral and used to describe... People of both genders, and only in the last couple of decades have we moved away from that practice and been more intentional about utilizing words like he and she or they, using instead of saying brothers, saying brothers and sisters, because Phoebe was very clearly a diakonos of the church. Even more interesting in Romans chapter 16, we see here that there is in verse 7 it says, Greet Andronicus and Junius. My relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Now, these two words together are actually partners. Most likely they're a husband and a wife. And Junius is a mistranslation. In the original text, the name is Junia, which there is no name Junius in the original Greek. That did not exist. There are no archaeological records of a name like Ju- Junius. However, there are a proliferation of places where you can find the name Junia. Similar to the word Julia, it was a definitively female name. And here she is being named as being outstanding among the apostles. In other words, Junia was actually considered an apostle. And you may say, well, how is that possible? Because there were only 12 apostles. Well, we know, first of all, that there were 12 apostles when Judas betrayed Jesus. And after his his suicide, they assigned Matthias through Lot to replace him. And they had the 12 apostles. But Paul also names himself as an apostle. So there were definitely more than 12 apostles. When you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5 starting there and going on to verse 8 it says this is after Christ was raised according to the scriptures it says that in verse 5 he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 So the original apostles were not just known as apostles, they were known as the 12. They had a title that specifically designated them with respect and authority over the rest of the church as the 12. And it says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So when it says here that he appeared to all of the apostles, he already had named that there were the 12. So he is not talking about the original 12. He is talking about the other apostles. Now, the requirements for being an apostle, we see in Acts chapter 1. Uh, We're not going to read all of this text, but the requirements for being an apostle was that they were someone who had walked with Jesus, had personally heard his teaching, and had been with him from the beginning of John's baptism to the time when he ascended. They must have been a witness with them of the resurrection. So it is quite possible that Andronicus and Junia had walked with Christ in ministry because we know from the scriptures that both men and women followed Jesus, walked with him, and were disciples during his ministry on earth. Now, I want to go back to Romans chapter 15. In verse 3, we have another interesting character where it says, Greet Priscilla and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. And we have another interesting feature here. And, And let's remember, Romans was written by Paul. So many of the texts that we have looked at were written by Paul the same author that is speaking here. So if we dismiss these other verses as, well, you're proof texting and you're taking, you're saying that these are not commands from the Lord, you're dishonoring scripture by saying that it just has to do with cultural context. Well, then how do we fit the fact that the same author is contradicting himself in Romans chapter 16 by elevating all of these women with titles and edifying them and encouraging them and speaking so highly of them, saying that they're outstanding, talking about how they risk their lives for him, that they're deacons, that they're apostles. And in verse three, Priscilla and Achilla, Priscilla is, is the wife in this situation, and she is actually named first. In fact, five out of the six times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the New Testament, Priscilla is named first. And even in today's modern culture, it's usually Mr. and Mrs. The husband is named first and then the wife. And we see that this is completely goes against the cultural norm. The person who was named first was seen as being the one who had the authority, the one who was the leader, the one who was the, the, the teacher or the one who... was in the position of honor. So the fact that Priscilla is named first meant that she was the one who was the primary agent in ministry. And we see here even further in Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, verse 26. It talks about someone named Apollos, and we see Apollos in other texts that Paul talks about how some follow him, some follow Apollos. Apollos was a well-known leader in the church. He was a very educated man. He had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, and he taught and went around with great fervor teaching others about the ministry of Jesus. However, in Acts chapter 18, we see that he was speaking boldly, but he did not have full understanding. And it says that Priscilla and Achilla heard him. They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So we see here, if you want to say that women are not supposed to have authority over men, which we'll get into a moment, you see here that Priscilla actually teaches Apollos. She and her husband were both participants in this. And they were the ones who instructed Apollos in the way of God and taught him how to do ministry more accurately. So she is in the position of being the one who disciples and pastors Apollos in this text. Speaking of the the word pastors, we can question whether women can be pastors or not, but the word pastor means shepherd simply. And by and large throughout scripture, it is simply translated as shepherd. The word pastor only appears once in scripture and it is part of a list where it's stating that some are called to be apostles. Some are, It's talking about the offices of the church. There is absolutely no description in scripture of who was qualified to be a pastor, what the requirements were of a pastor, and nor do we even know what a pastor did. And I can assure you what pastors do now is going to be very different from what they were doing in the first century church. The fact that pastors preach and teach And help run a congregation and are leaders of the ministry is something that was not the model of the first century church. And in fact, scripture never forbids. The word for preaching is Caruso. And scripture nowhere prevents or forbids women from preaching the word. So if the primary responsibility of a pastor is to preach the word, then women are perfectly allowed to do that according to scripture. And in John chapter 20, verse 17 and 18, we actually see that the resurrected Christ first encounters Mary Magdalene and he commissions her to go spread this good news to tell the apostles of his resurrection and of the fact that she has witnessed him uh, in flesh and blood, the resurrected Messiah. So in other words, she is sent to preach the good news. She is the first one who has been commissioned and sent to preach that good word. Now I had mentioned that in Luke chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, I had mentioned that women were also disciples with Christ, which defied what women were allowed to do. Women were not allowed to be disciples. Women were not allowed to learn uh, in the ancient Near East, but Jesus allowed them not only to follow him, but to actually sit at his feet as Mary and Martha did. We see he actually says that Mary has chosen what is greater. He allows Mary to be a disciple to actually learn and sit at his feet and to absorb and hear how to divide the word of God more clearly, how to learn about the kingdom of God and how to, how to minister uh, by following as a disciple. So Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, Mary was not the only one, but it says after this in verse 1, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12, again, here's that title, the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So we see that even as the men traveled, the women were allowed to travel with Jesus, some of them being very wealthy and prominent women, some of them being of questionable repute. And yet they were allowed to travel in a way that honestly made Jesus vulnerable to criticism and to, to could have discredited his ministry. But not only were these women allowed to participate actively as partners in ministry, they were helping support the ministry out of their own means. These women were providing for the ministry and helping the ministry. And isn't that so true of the church throughout history that women have very often been the very backbone of the church and too often they are not given enough respect and credit for the fact that the church as an institution has been upheld by so many women of prayer, by so many women in leadership, by so many women of service who have helped advance the cause of the gospel. So looking at the next problematic text, we look at 1 Timothy. We're going back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Starting in verse 11, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. We have already seen examples in scripture of how women have been allowed to teach. Again, this is Paul. This is the very same man. So this should send some red flags to us of how could Paul say this? When there were examples of him admonishing the women who were serving as deacons and who were serving as teachers and who were serving as leaders. So it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. The word in Greek there for authority is authentic. This is the only time it appears in scripture. And the word authentic does not mean to have authority. It does not mean to lead over a man. It means to dominate, to domineer over men and men are also not allowed we I've already seen this in the previous text men are also not allowed to dominate or domineer over women so what we have happening here is a cultural context first timothy was written to a church in Ephesus. That is where Timothy was serving. But before I unpack that a little bit, we'll read the rest of this. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So let's just pause for a second. We have to send up some major red flags because he's saying here that women will be saved through childbearing. The last time I checked... Women were not saved through childbearing. We are all saved by grace, which is the gift of God so that no one can boast. We are all saved through Christ's death and resurrection, through his sacrifice on the cross. We have been washed in the blood, forgiven, justified, sanctified, and made clean. So women are not, apart from that, that they are not saved through having children, but they are saved by the work that was done through Christ's death and resurrection. So if we are saved by grace and not childbearing, there has to be something here that is going on in Ephesus that would help give us an explanation for why Paul is saying this. First of all, Timothy was not written to the church at large. Timothy was written to a specific leader of the church, which was a young man named Timothy, who was struggling to figure out how to lead and guide the church uh, in a way that uh, allowed him to do so. Uh, He was having a hard time being taken seriously, so it says, do not let them look down on you because you are young. So he is giving guidelines for Timothy on how to assert his place as the leader of this congregation. But more importantly, when you study the history of of the city of Ephesus, there was a cult in that city called the cult of Artemis. The cult of Artemis, Artemis was a mother goddess and all of her all of her priests were female. And the cult of Artemis taught that the source of life was Artemis, the mother goddess, so that man actually came from woman rather than the other way around. And that completely contradicts the narrative of scripture that we know from the beginning in Genesis, that all things come from God, the father, not from a mother goddess. So this was combating idolatry we have to know the context here it was also teaching that women were superior to men which is why it needs to be specifically addressed that women need to be in a subordinate position rather than the ones who are domineering because this was meant to be a countercultural example to what was happening in the city of ephesus for more support of this we look at acts acts chapter 19 And again, I hope you're following along. Please turn through your scriptures and read these along with me. You can take notes and come back to it later. Uh, Do some research through Google. You know, I have studied the Greek and the Hebrew, so I am speaking from a place of being trained. But you are welcome to use resources that help you to rightly divide the word of truth by looking into the original text as well. What we see here in, in Acts chapter 19 verses 27 to 29. So they were teaching in Ephesus, the church was expanding, the church was growing, and it starts to create problems in the city of Ephesus. And originally the conflict had to do with the fact that the craftsmen were not making money because people were not buying their idols. But it's the argument comes forward about where a riot actually starts in the city, creating an uproar. So this has to do with the instability of the city as a result of the... the the way it is called, they're called the way at this point, rather than Christians because of their activity in the city. And in verse 27, it says, there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Remember, this is the city that we're talking about in first Timothy chapter two. It says that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. And in verse 28, it says, "'When they heard this, they were furious "'and began shouting, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians.'" Verse 29, "'Soon the whole city was in uproar.'" So we know that Ephesus was the global center for the cult of Artemis, which I said is the cult worshiping the mother goddess, which taught that women were superior to men and that women were the source, a woman was the source of all creation.'" So Paul is specifically addressing a context where it was the center of the cult of Artemis and he's trying to equip a young pastor how to lead his congregation in an orderly fashion. So let's look at the, we've looked at these problematic texts and hopefully this is encouraging or at least hopefully it challenges you and causes you to look below the surface. Uh, we should always study scripture in the cultural context and do some research about the history rather than proof texting and just taking a single verse out of scripture in order to prove our point. So now we're going to look at the larger Context of scripture and the larger narrative of what God has to say about women in His creation. Before the fall of man, we see in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, again in the Hebrew. When you were trying to make a point, you would very often repeat things three times because three was considered a number of completion. And in verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. And the word here for man is mankind or humanity. And if you don't believe me, we can see in the following verses, it says, In the image of God, he created him. But then it clarifies in the third resounding part, male and female, he created them. So we are made in the image of God. Male and female are made in the image of God, different, but yet equal in his eyes. When you look at Genesis chapter 2, God places man in the garden and he gives him the command not to eat from the tree. God had already made it clear that everything was good on each day of creation. And after he created humanity and finished creation, he said it was very good. But in the time in between, man existed and woman had not yet been created. And when God gives the commandment not to eat from the tree, for the first time we hear God say, it is not good for man to be alone. So he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And before we jump to the conclusion that once again, women are made to be servants and helpers to men, the word here is Ezer. In the Hebrew, the word Ezer is predominantly translated throughout scripture as deliverer. And I'm not saying that women are superior in any way, but the word Ezer is used to describe God. So if anything, it is definitely not a subordinate term. What she has been created to do as an easer is she gives man someone who can be a counterpart, someone who can hold him accountable so that he does not fall into sin. And tragically, we know the story that the reverse ends up happening. And because of the fall, we begin to have this division of men and women and where things have been turned upside down. Well, Christ died and resurrected to turn everything right back up. So we want to go back to the way God originally intended. More interestingly, when you look at chapter three, when the fall takes place, it says in verse six and seven, the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and she ate of it. Well, what happens? Nothing. But then it says she also gave some to her husband, who, first of all, was with her. She did not take the fruit to him and trap him in some sort of way. He was literally standing right next to her. And rather than being someone who held her accountable, he allows her to be the one to take the first bite, to just test the waters and see what happens. But that's a totally different teaching. But what happens is when he eats of it, only until the, the complete image of God, both male and female... Eat and disobey the commandment. It says in verse 7 after he ate of it, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So we see that the woman was made as an act of grace. Even as early as Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, God had a design for accountability. God had a design that it was not good for us to be in isolation. We all know that we need to be planted and rooted in a faith community. We should not try to navigate our faith alone because in isolation, the enemy can trap us and ensnare us. And we see that this unraveled uh, in chapter 3. But when the woman eats of it, by God's grace, nothing happens. So we don't know what would have happened if it had stopped there. If the husband had not eaten of it, there is a possibility that the story would have unfolded very differently. But tragically, they both eat of it. And after he eats of it, the eyes of both of them were opened. So this not only looks at the troublesome text, but we begin to see how God has a redemption story. We're not going to read all of these texts, and there's so many more examples, but I just want to point out some of the women through the Old Testament and a couple from the New Testament who God has set apart in a way that should encourage us as women. Even after the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, it is said that the... When, when God puts the curse on the serpent, he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the promise of the Messiah does not come through the seed of the man, does not come from the offspring of the man, but God promises that it will be through the woman that the Messiah will come. This is why Paul talks in First Timothy about women will be saved through childbearing because the tradition, according to Jewish Jewish faith, was that the Messiah would be brought through the woman's line. So they were waiting historically for the Messiah to come. And this is even why Jesus had to be born of a virgin because it was the woman's seed that was the, the defining moment of the Messiah coming into the world. So not that women would be saved through giving birth, but that the promise that is here of restoration, the promise of salvation that comes as early as Genesis chapter three would come through the woman. And interestingly enough, when you even fast forward to Abraham and Sarah, we know that the people of God are traditionally referred to as the children of Abraham. But when you look at the story, Abraham had a child with Hagar and after Sarah passes away, he has additional children with wives and concubines. So then what God promised the, that Isaac would come through Sarah. He makes a specific point that Sarah has been chosen for the continuation of this line. So not all of Abraham's children were children of the promise. Only Isaac came from the the promise of God. And it was important that that Isaac was born of Sarah. So Abraham, while he's important to the story, and he's seen as the forefather of the faith, Sarah was equally, in some ways, if not more important, because Abraham had other children, that it was Sarah who was chosen to propagate this line. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, we see the example of Miriam, who is named as a prophetess. So you have Moses, you have Aaron, and Moses is seen as superior to Aaron, who was a priest, But Moses was seen as a prophet. Well, Miriam was also seen as a prophet. And in the Old Testament, the role of prophet was actually seen as being higher than the role of a priest. So you may say, well, women weren't allowed to be priests. Well, the priest was seen as a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And we know that historically, Jesus was male. He was not female. He was not androgynous. The way that he came was a male. And if this is a pre-shadowing, a prefigurement of the Messiah, then it was important that when they looked at the priest, when they looked at the temple, that Jesus being our high priest, that his image would be male. But in fact, the office of a prophet was seen as higher. We see that with Moses and Aaron. We see that in Samuel, that the, the role of a prophet was seen with more honor than the role even of a priest. In Judges chapter 4, we see Deborah, who was a judge, a leader, and a ruler of the people of Israel. So she was not diminished. She was not chosen as a leader because there were no men around, but the people cry out specifically for God to deliver them. And he sends Deborah to be able to do that for for them and to rule with wisdom and with instruction. She's even a military leader where she, she kind of treats uh, the life of the men around her because they depended on her to lead, and she kind of punks them in a way by by flexing the fact that she would be their leader. Uh, but I want to f- fast forward to Second Kings chapter twenty two, verse fourteen, and so on. We see in Second Kings chapter twenty two. That Josiah becomes king, they find the book of the law and they try to figure out what it is that they're supposed to do with this scripture. What is God telling them to do? They need to figure out what is God's will because they see that they have deterred, they have, they have strayed from God's law and they don't know how to come back to what he has commanded them to do. Now, at this time, there were some prophetic giants, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, but they didn't go to those prophets. They went to a prophetess named Huldah. They went to Huldah to seek her wisdom, to seek a word of the Lord from Huldah, from this female prophetess. And as a result of what she tells them to do, the, the nation experiences revival. The nation experiences revival. How powerful is that? That God uses a woman, not only as a prophet, not only to deliver the word of God, but in order to restore the, the kingdom of Judah to what God has commanded them to do, and to create a revival in the nation. Now we fast forward, Luke chapter one verse forty-one. This is an this is an exciting little tidbit of information. In Luke chapter one verse forty-one, it says that. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So in the New Testament, the very first person we see to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when Mary comes to visit her with Jesus, it doesn't just say that she that John stirred in her belly, which is also true. It says that Elizabeth herself, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful picture. And we, with that, we, we're going to close with Acts chapter 2, which echoes and resonates with Elizabeth's experience with what should be our experience as women in the church and women in society. Uh, This upheaval of the cultural norm. So you know your context and we don't want to be people who are offensive to the culture. We don't want to bring disgrace upon the church. So we need to read the times and read the culture. And we should do that whether we're missionaries, we should do that within our own context, our own nation, our own cities. We should always be mindful of the context that we're in. However, we should also know our worth. This is for men to know as well as for women to be educated about these things and to know that you, women are made in the image of God. They are called. They are anointed. They are called to serve. They are called to lead. They are called to pray. They are called to preach. They are called to prophesy. They are called to be to bring forth the kingdom of God, to be heralds and witnesses, to testify of what the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And in Acts chapter two, we finish with verse 17 and 18. It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Women, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been called. You have been chosen. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you should be fully included in the ministry that God has called the church to do. To build the church up towards maturity as the body of Christ. And when we stand before the Lord, we will not have the excuse to say, well, the men didn't let me do what you called me to do. When we stand before Christ, we will have to give an account of our time, of our talents, of our treasures. What did we do with the word of God and with what he has called us to do? We will be without excuse. When it comes to our calling as women in our place in society, we cannot point the finger and say that someone else did not allow us to. Whatever God tells you to do, his word trumps uh, trumps the word of men, trumps the word of society. So we need to move forward with boldness. We need to move forward with courage and we need to rightly defy the word of truth and to live out our calling with purpose and with integrity. Ladies, be bold, be encouraged and be a witness to what God has done. Live out your testimony in the fullness of who God created you to be.